0: In the wake of the Crusades, the Muslim world was about to enter a new period in its history. A period in which slave soldiers would take control. They would defeat some of the most powerful conquerors out there and, for a while, be the most powerful military in the world, raising Cairo to the largest city in the world. Not only great for its military status, but as a center of the arts and the sciences. It was another golden age of a type in Islamic history, and the world of these slave soldiers, these Mamluks, would persist almost to the 19th century. The great cities of the Middle East today carry the reminders of this great empire with the walls, the fortresses, and castles. So today we look at the rise of the Mamluks, as the dynasty of Salahuddin begins to come to a close and inaugurates, for better and for worse, a new era in Muslim history. So stay tuned. welcome back. Well today as I said we're beginning an important phase in Muslim history and it really is a a phase, a period of history that does persist right up until about the invasion of Napoleon in 1798 and this is the Mamluks. In fact they are not destroyed until the beginning of the 19th century. Now The status of Mamluk is something kind of difficult for us to understand as Westerners, because it doesn't really correspond to anything that we have in the West. So the word Mamluk in Arabic means owned, and as you would guess, that designates a slave, or anything that is property, and that's what the Mamluks were. But they were also the leaders of a powerful empire. Now, they were both at the same time, and I think it's difficult for us to get our, our heads around that. So uh, to explain this, we have to talk about the kind of slavery that is involved here. So, now I don't want to get in any trouble here. Please don't make it sound like I'm making uh, slavery sound like a good thing. Uh, There was lots of different types of slavery in the Muslim world. There were a lot of slaves being bought and sold, and most of it was bad, like what we see in the rest of the world, as in the the Roman Empire, or uh, what we had in America, or any number of places. But There were also, at times, a lot of people in high places with a lot of influence in very important positions that had slave status or origins, and and this is because, as you've seen, there's been a lot of instability, right? We've seen by now what happens when brothers get power. We end up with civil war. We end up with uncles and cousins and uh, especially brothers going after each other and overthrowing each other. So you want to have someone you can trust, someone who's loyal. And pretty much as we've seen by now, uh, you do that by bringing someone from the outside. So whether that be eunuchs who can't produce and, of course, can't pass power onto their uh, next generation who were very uh, influential and uh, very powerful in the Muslim world, as they were in places like China. Or you use slaves. Okay. And so in some cases... Uh, we've seen people with slave status that, that rise up to the positions of being right underneath a, a caliph or a sultan. Now, again, I want to say I'm not trying to make slavery sound good. The vast majority of it going on in the world is as bad as you think at this time. Okay, And there were some actually really terrible forms of slavery that were going on at this time. But when we're talking about the Mamluks, we're talking about a very specific form of slavery. So this really goes back to uh, way back to the early Abbasid period in the ninth century and we saw how caliphs like al-Mu'tasim for example uh, brought in Turkish warriors to be the backbone of their military but at this time these these were basically entire tribes that were paid. I mean we would call them pretty much mercenaries today. And, you know, you were bringing in outside muscle because there was so much internal strife. You could see how the the Arab tribes were constantly switching sides and backing one power after another and backstabbing one another. So you go out and you find these great warriors, and you bring them in to be loyal to you. But we've also seen that those tribes would riot and take over. They created a lot of trouble in Baghdad. So that's not a a very perfect system. Well, that idea of bringing in your your own uh, special kind of warriors, this is eventually going to morph into the Mamluk system. And scholars today are really divided on when it really becomes this system. And in fact, opinions have changed since the 1990s. Uh, More sources have been found and have been uh, analyzed, but definitely by the time of Salah ad at the time of the Crusades, when Salah has established his empire, Mamluk soldiers were not only very common, but they were pretty much the backbone of most of the forces that are out there. So what were they? Okay, well, the way this system worked, when it worked perfectly, which, you know, was not all the time, uh, but at least initially, is that individuals would be purchased as slaves. Now, these are almost always non-Muslims. Uh, ostensibly, this is because there were prohibitions against Muslims enslaving other Muslims, but that that happens too. But the real reason is you wanted outsiders. You wanted people who were untainted. Uh, you know, if you're going to build up your forces in Cairo, Uh, you want people from way outside of Cairo who have no connection with all the politics going on there. And so generally they were coming from Central Asia, and initially they were mostly Kipchak Turks, which is actually a very large area in Central Asia. And some of the reasons for this, of course, is that, I mean, that's a very harsh landscape out there. The conditions were harsh, they bred tough warriors, Uh, and also the kinds of skills that you learn to survive out there in Central Asia. You learn to ride a horse very early on. You learn to shoot a bow very early on, uh, because that's the way you hunt. That's the way you fight. And so these people would become good cavalry. Now, of course, um, you could judge them early on. And so basically, you would have these slave merchants who would go out and pick the most promising specimens. You wanted youths who looked like they would grow into strong warriors and you know had some skill at riding, at shooting. I mean, it's really kind of like scouting for sports. Now, actually families sold their children into this, and definitely local leaders, tribal leaders would sell the members of their tribe off into this. And of course this sounds terrible to us, uh, but you know it's a, it's a different time back then. You know, this area, Central Asia, was very impoverished. Life was really hard, and the Ayyubids and the later Mamluk rulers, I mean, they paid big bucks, big bucks uh, for a lot of these slave children. I mean, by the standards of that part of the world, it was huge money. And also, have to remember the the general trend that's going on in in history which continues for centuries is that we have the Mongols coming they're pushing from the east I mean they start way out in Mongolia close to China and they are pushing east and so they are pushing uh, the Turks from central asia basically they're pushing them westward and they are fleeing more and more towards the lands of the muslims and so they're coming into contact and you have families you have tribes that are being pushed out of their homeland. They're sort of, um, you know, migratory. Uh, It's really tough to survive on the steps, and here comes somebody who's gonna offer you a lot of money uh, for your kids. So as as horrible as that sounds, I mean, people did uh, sell their children into this, and it was sort of like, uh, I won't say an honor, but it was sort of a, a good thing that they were trying to get into. Okay, so what happened from there? Well, these uh, young people would then be taken away from their families, and they would be trained in special military schools, and most of them was in Cairo where they had these barracks, and they were trained to be soldiers. I mean, it's, it's almost something like what we see in the Hunger Games with the, uh, not District 13, but with the you know, the really uh, fancy prestigious districts, you know, these kids who were trained from birth almost to be warriors. Well, the first thing they would be taught was Islam. They would be be taught Islam and then converted. And part of that was they were taught to see this whole experience as part of their destiny. I mean, yes, you were bought and sold as a slave, uh, but, I mean, the idea was you were being rescued from a pagan existence. That's, you know, most of the places they were coming from were pagans. You were taught the true religion. You were brought to a place of, of much greater wealth than the steppes. I mean, Cairo compared to... Uh, the areas they were coming from, I mean, was was dazzling. And it was all part of God's plan. And so you were to see it that way. Um, and then they would be trained in military skills. And again, mostly as mounted cavalry. And we've seen the kind of warriors that were fighting against the Crusaders. Remember the Crusaders, these big, heavily armored, slow-moving uh, knights uh, against these really fast-moving uh, cavalry with distance weapons. And we see how effective they are. Okay, and they lived in these barracks, and the barracks were supervised by eunuchs. Uh, and you can maybe understand why you would have eunuchs. You were trying to stop any sort of uh, hanky-panky going on there. And in fact, uh, the penalty for any sort of sodomy going on between uh, the Mamluks was usually death. So they were they were run uh, pretty strictly. But Part of the, the idea and, and part of it that made it, you know, more palatable to them and something they wanted to uh, actually get into was once the training was over, once you hit basically your graduation, the slaves were then freed, okay? So you were going into this knowing, I mean, you weren't going to be a slave forever, and then they would uh, enter the army and they would be paid a salary, and there was a very slow but steady system of promotions. Uh, everybody started as the bottom rung, and this is, you know, a very good thing when we're looking at well, not not only uh, ancient armies, but look even armies of the world today. Was the idea that you had to work your way up based on a system of merit, because we've seen throughout history what happens when you have let's say hereditary positions or people who get to be generals and officers because of their status because of their birth uh, and they're not very good uh, you end up with some incompetence so everybody starts at the bottom rank because i mean you're a slave you start off knowing nobody and they could rise up the system you could rise all the way up to the top but the uh, the really central concept here is that these Mamluks were exclusively loyal to the person who bought them and trained them. And in fact, they viewed it as a family. That was the terms that they actually used. So the, the owner, who would be a high-ranking you know, Mamluk himself, right, a freed Mamluk, like a general, the owner was known as the Walid, or the father. And the other Mamluks that they trained, with refer to each other as brothers. And so they would come in as a cohort, they would live in one barracks together, uh, and you would rise up this system together, and this really was like your family. The big difference was, though, new generations are not born into this, they are essentially selected and bought into it. So everybody who joins this family is joining because they're really good specimens of um, high quality soldiers. There's no hereditary uh, membership here. Well, as you might imagine, everything depended on the the owner or the the so-called father. Uh, If your owner died or fell out of favor, if he was part of a faction that ended up losing, well, it was a big problem for you. Uh, So you're your Mamluks, they would become like Ronin, basically, meaning nobody wanted to take them in uh, for obvious reasons. You're fiercely loyal to someone who is now dead or out of power. And as you might imagine, the Mamluks of the Sultan, okay, the Sultan's Mamluks, they got the best treatment. They got the best barracks, and they were almost sure to rise to the highest positions in the army. So, you may be wondering, how can you possibly manage a military system like this? Well, what we have to remember here is that the armies at this time are not the size we're talking about in the modern era. I mean, they're not even close to what we'll see in later centuries in Europe. Okay, your full-time military is very small and elite, it's supplemented, if necessary, by call-ups of foot soldiers when you need them. And then, say, if your city's under attack, basically everybody has to get involved to fight. But your, your full-time military is actually very small. And it's mostly horse cavalry, which, just like European knights, is very expensive to maintain. In fact, uh, in Cairo, they had laws that the only people allowed to own a horse or ride a horse, were the Mamluks, okay, so that was something that was exclusive to them, well, cost money to maintain these very, you know, high quality war horses and all their equipment, though, and so really the key part of any military was like the royal guard, the, the official guard of the sultan, or the emir, if you're in a city, and that's the, the core. So this system, I mean even though it seems somewhat complicated and maybe difficult to maintain, is basically going to last for about a thousand years in the Middle East in various forms. Uh, Mamluks will rule for uh, right about 300 years as an actual empire, but even when their empire is technically defeated later on when the Ottomans are going to take over, Basically, the internal affairs of Egypt continue to be run by Mamluks, and this goes right up until the modern time, until uh, Napoleon shows up much, much later on. So, if this system works for the military, why not try it in other professions? why not pick the most promising brains out there to be your administrators and bureaucrats as well and not get somebody who's got ties to other family or other cliques who's going to be corrupt bring in somebody who's totally clean or at least someone who's totally loyal to you so this this starts to pervade the running of the entire state so Right now you can see why they'd be bringing in a lot of male slaves to become Mamluks. But the fact is they were bringing in about the same number of slave girls as well. Now some of them were brought in just to be servant girls, but there's another reason why they would do this is that the Mamluks would almost exclusively marry slave girls who are from the same region that they came from, the same tribal area that they came from. Right? So you need to have a lot of them as well. Now they would have children, but the children were not allowed to enter the Mamluk system, at least when it's working correctly. They're not supposed to. Now we're going to see examples where this gets relaxed, they get slack, and this uh, starts to happen. But the uh, ostensibly this is because you want people who grow up on the step, grow up in the saddle, not somebody who grew up in the the cushy environment of Cairo, which to us today, we we would consider it a pretty harsh place, but I mean, compared to the the world they're coming from, that's kind of luxury. But really, the big reason, though, is you want people who come in with no loyalties. Okay, they come in totally fresh, a blank slate, and you're able to uh, shape them in your particular uh, loyalty. Okay, so you continue to get a fresh supply of soldiers. Well, you can imagine if this thing works, you know, forget the humanitarian reasons and ethical concerns that you may have. If your only uh, concern is to have a military that's loyal to you and avoid, uh, you know, weakness and corruption, well, the system's going to work pretty well. But one rule of history that I have mentioned many times so far throughout this series is is that if you outsource your military to anybody, okay? If your military is not a real, genuine cross-section of your society, they're going to take over. Okay, so it should be no surprise uh, that we go from having a largely Mamluk-based military in the Ayyubid dynasty to having a Mamluk empire itself. Okay, but that that takeover uh, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's definitely spurred on by the events going on in the region. I mean, Remember what's happening here. We have a renewal of the Crusades. We're going to get a series of Crusades. Uh, several of them go right for Egypt itself, and the, the Crusaders march on Cairo. On the other side, we have the Mongol conquest coming from the east, which, I mean, I have been harping on since uh, probably the first episode of this series, like the great storm that's coming. Well, this is when it hits. And so this is a real struggle for survival. I mean, if you were there at the time and you were betting money on whether Egypt is going to stay independent or not, uh, you'd probably bet against it. I mean, look at what's happening. Persia's falling. Iraq is falling. The great city of Baghdad is, falls and is sacked by the Mongols. And then we got the Crusaders coming from the other way. If you were going to bet money on Egypt, you'd probably bet against them. But as it turns out, the Mamluks end up keeping things together. They stave this off. And so it's not unusual that in the process of defending this, this state, of defending uh, Islam as they see it against all this onslaught is that the fighters are gonna take over. And for better or worse, they do a good job of that. But what I wanna stress here though is this is not a revolution. And it's natural to uh, think that when we hear it. Particularly in the West, we hear about slaves taking over the dynasty and taking over the state, you know, we think of an uprising. We think of a slave revolt, breaking their chains, uh, similar to what happens in Haiti in the 1800s with uh, Toussaint Louverture. Okay, but that's not what's happening here at all. Uh, This is more like an evolution. I mean, what's happening is Mamluk generals who have, I mean, been bought as slaves, will become increasingly important and influential in the Ayyubid dynasty, to the point where they realize we don't need the Ayyubids anymore. Okay, and when that happens, it's kind of like you're just shedding off the top layer of your command structure, sort of streamlining things, put the people who really run things in charge. And so what's really remarkable is how little actually changes when we go from an Ayyubid dynasty to a Mamluk state. And there's definitely no sense, no sense at all in which the new Mamluk sultans want to get rid of them, the system. To them, it's working just fine. I mean, when they take over, they want to have a steady supply of slaves coming in to be their Mamluks. Okay? And so this is why I say it's not a revolution that they're taking over, because these people are bought and brought into the system with the intent that they are going to be freed and become soldiers and eventually officers and generals, and that's what they do. They just get rid of the essentially the politicians at the top, and they keep that other system going for uh you know for a long time almost a thousand years and to them this is the way it should be Having said all that about the nature of the Mamluk system, it is very interesting to note how the transition to Mamluk rule actually occurs. And it's it's an interesting story with a lot of interesting aspects and it brings up some of the more colorful and memorable characters in uh, Islamic history, particularly in Egyptian history. Uh, these are people who have a lot of movies made about them, so it's good to get to know these names. And we've talked about Salah Hadin, is certainly the star of many, many epics uh, right up to the present day. Okay, so how do we get from Salah Adin's Ayyubid dynasty to this Mamluk state? Well, we talked about Salah ad and how he consolidated power in Syria and Egypt, and he did this by bringing a lot of smaller states under his control. Remember the biggies: Damascus, Aleppo. These are always the ones you have to take over. But these places had their own armies, of course. And as I said, armies are pretty small at this time and they're not fighting, you know, wars to the death. It's not like total war. So when, when you go in and, and knock off another emir and take over his territory, uh, you're basically gonna inherit his army. And so these armies had lots of Mamluks well embedded in them in their command structure. So increasingly, Salah ad army is filled out with Mamluks. I mean, it's not his choice, it's not the way he wants to do it, but this is what he's inheriting. So throughout most of the time of the Ayyubid dynasty, uh, which is, it, it's a pretty uh, short period of time, by the way, uh, about a century, okay, um, in, in in the scope of the history we're talking about, that's, you know, uh, relatively short. Um Throughout most of this time though, the, the leaders, the sultans that follow him maintain a balance between the Turkish Mamluks and the Kurds. Uh, and remember, Salah Adin himself is a Kurd. He has Kurdish fighters. Uh, Kurds, like the Turks, are very famous for, for being fighters. And he, he maintains a balance so no one faction gets the upper hand. Well. After Salahuddin dies, unfortunately, I guess, um, his sons are really not up to the task of ruling. So it's his brother, Al-Adl, who becomes the Sultan. And all the further Ayyubid sultans are actually descendants of Al-Adl and not of Salahuddin himself. I mean, they're nephews, okay. And this period, even though it's brief, is a period of relative peace and prosperity. So the time of Salah ad and the Ayyubids is uh, well remembered. The Ayyubids maintain control in Egypt. Uh, they're able to put down several rebellions uh, and they work out a truce with the Franks. And remember, there's already uh, kind of this idea of mutual respect between Salah ad the and the Frankish leaders. By this time, it's, it's really a political thing And, you know, they're able to work out deals. Well, once you have peace, this leads to an economic recovery, which is good. Uh, And so there's uh, further investment in infrastructure, a lot of investment in the arts, in architecture, in um, sciences. And so it's pretty much a relative flourishing. And the Ayubids, of course, also put a big emphasis on Re establishing Sunni orthodoxy. Now, remember, the Fatimids who had ruled before were Shiites, but the Shiism never really took hold with the mass public, as we discussed. And in fact, the Fatimids never really tried to. I mean, they were not out to convert the population of Egypt to Shi'ism. They just wanted to have the institutions for the elite. And remember, this went back to the idea of the Fatimids being Ismailis. Ismailis have this idea of the, the secret knowledge um, that only that only they have. So they weren't really out trying to share this with everybody in the world, or nor with everybody in their own country. So there's still a very strong Sunni population, well, when you get a now a Sunni dynasty that takes over, uh, they're going to be welcome. And so this endears them very well with the public. It also endears them with the Abbasid Khalif in Baghdad. And so relations between the Khalifat and the Ayyubids uh, become very good, very positive. Now, technically, the Ayyubids still pay lip service to the Khalifat, even though they are really autonomous, and they're actually more powerful than the, the Abbasid caliph, but, you know, the, the caliph still has that, that prestige, right, so getting the offic- official blessing of the caliph is very good for their legitimacy. If you remember, during the Fatimid period, they set up their own caliph because they're Shia, they don't, they don't believe in the caliph who's in Baghdad, you have these two, two rival caliphs going on, now you have an Ayyubid sultanate in Egypt who is saying, no, we definitely follow the caliph in Baghdad. He's the real one. And so this is great for, for both sides. Okay, it's actually a good time for the Jews and for all the non-Frankish Christians. Remember, um, there's a big difference. Uh, you know, the, the European Christian. I mean, essentially these are Catholic Christians, they go on the Crusades ostensibly because they're coming to help the Eastern Christians, but uh, from the moment they get there, uh, they end up being, being worse to them than the Muslims were. Okay, So for all the Christians who are you know, not Western European Catholic Christian descendants of the Crusaders, uh, it's actually a better time for them under the Ayubids than, than it ever was under the Crusaders. So Jews who had been kicked out of Jerusalem, are allowed to return, and all the other branches of Christianity, like, for example, the Copts in Egypt, the uh, Byzantine, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, um, they, they get more uh, freedom, they get, get more of a role in Jerusalem, and so it's good for them. Beyond that, the Ayyubids also invest very heavily in fortifications, And some of the the great citadels of the Middle East, when you think of probably the two most famous ones, the the citadel of Salahadine in Cairo and the famous citadel of Aleppo, and these are both amazing sites, both were built by the Ayyubids. And obviously what they're doing is they're trying to compete with the crusaders who were building castles like, you know, out of control during this time. Okay, so uh, things seem to be going along really well, particularly if you're uh, an Egyptian Sunni. Uh, things look really good under the Ayyubid dynasty and it is remembered pretty uh, pretty fondly in history. Well, the Crusader threat, however, uh, had been basically bought off through treaties during this time. Remember, we saw that the Third Crusade basically failed. Okay and then there is a fourth crusade and this one really has to go down as a as a low point in in the low and the whole history of the crusades i mean this is probably the the bottom of the barrel now normally as we said we we don't focus a whole lot on the european side of the crusades uh, because there's been a lot of attention to those but i mean this one we just we can't pass this up i mean you just have to talk a little bit about the fourth crusade just to get an idea of you know particularly why people in the Middle East of, of all denominations are pretty sick of these people by now, and, and why even the, the Byzantines would be glad to be rid of them and would much rather deal with the Muslims uh, than these guys. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Fourth Crusade. We're going to go off in a, a little bit of a sidetrack for a moment, but I think you'll find this is uh, quite worth it. Okay, so the Fourth Crusade was launched by the very ironically named Pope Innocent III, uh, which he he certainly wasn't. Um, and the goal of this uh, crusade was to attack the Ayyubid base in Egypt. I mean, of course, they want the Holy Land, they want Jerusalem, but they realize that the Ayyubids are the power you have to deal with. So let's let's knock them off. Let's take over Egypt. Okay, but once this thing gets started, neither the Pope nor Egypt really even come into play, okay? So this uh, particular crusade, unlike the others, is heavily financed by the city-state of Venice, which is really the commercial powerhouse of the time. You know, so today we tend to think of, of Venice as just being one city, uh, not even the largest city in Italy, which is, which is true. But uh, during the Middle Ages, uh, Venice is really a state, and at times it is one of the most powerful states in Europe and the most powerful state in the Mediterranean. And so this crusade is, is financed by the Doge of Venice, the very famous Enrico Dandolo. And he organizes the logistics and the transportation. He has a huge number of ships. I mean, if you want to ship soldiers across the Mediterranean to Egypt and keep them supplied, you need him. Okay, so he makes preparations to ship 30,000 troops to Egypt. By the standards of, of the day, this is huge. I mean, this is like D-Day in 1944 uh, by comparison. Well, Uh, the crusaders aren't able to scrape up anywhere near that amount of troops. I mean, they come up with less than half that uh, number. They don't get anywhere close to it. And uh, at the same time, they're not only scraping up troops, but they're supposed to be scraping up money to pay for this. So they show up in Venice with a, a small force and not near enough money to pay the fee that Enrico Dandolo wants. Well he wants his money, and he's not going to let the army go. He doesn't let them leave Venice until they pay him in full, even though, I mean, they're not going to use half the stuff that he's got. I mean, you're got to pay the full price for 30,000 troops uh, no matter what. So you, you can see where his interest lays. Okay, this is really, yeah, I mean, a really great religious mission that he's on here. I mean, he wants his money. Okay, well, that's bad enough, but it, it goes worse. It's going to go way worse. Okay, so we, we got this crusader army stuck in Venice and unable to pay him. So he comes up with another way for them to pay off their debt. And I mean, you just, you, you have to love this. Okay, so, you know, remember, as I said, Venice is actually a major nation and it controls a lot of land around the Mediterranean and particularly around the Adriatic Sea. But it's one of these, what we we call like a merchant power, Uh, Instead of a military power, it it does it through economic power. Okay, so as a partial payment, Uh, Enrico decides that the crusaders can pay off part of their debt, not even all of it, if they go sack the city of Zara, which is located in Croatia today, and then also sack the city of Trieste, which is in northern Italy. Now, these were both former Venetian possessions. That had become independent, had rebelled against him, so he wants him to go sack these European cities. But to make it worse, these are both Catholic cities. Okay, they're not even Eastern Orthodox, so he's going to send this crusader army to go rape and pillage uh, a Catholic European city in order to pay for a crusade to Jerusalem. Okay, I mean, if that sounds sleazy, it is, and it gets worse. Okay, so They only make it to the first city, but the sack of Zara is so bad, and it it becomes so infamous, uh, what these crusaders do there, that the Pope actually excommunicates the crusader armies. Okay, imagine this. This is the Pope who called the crusade. He's now excommunicated everybody in the army, and people go on these crusades to pay for your sins, right? To get a place in heaven. Now you've been excommunicated for what you've done. I mean, it was fine when they were doing it to to Muslims and Jews in Jerusalem, but they're, they're doing it to Catholic cities. Okay, but anyway, the leaders of the crusade decide that this news would put a damper on the crusade so they don't bother to tell the soldiers. So imagine that you're going on a crusade that has been called by the pope. You think you're going to get all these blessings. You've actually been excommunicated from the church for what you did uh, but they don't bother to tell you this, so they're still going go to go to Egypt anyway with this. Now with this crusade that has absolutely no, no religious sanction whatsoever. Okay, that sounds bad. This is actually not the worst part of the crusade. This is not even what it's famous for. Okay, so I mean, they, uh, they go low. They're they're digging. They're digging a hole even deeper and deeper. Okay. So they're still cash-strapped. they still got to pay off uh, Enrico Dandolo. Uh, so they, they make it to Constantinople. Now, in Constantinople, there is a big succession crisis going on. It's pretty similar to the kind of fights we've seen. Every time a caliph dies, you have these fights um, you know, between the relatives to take over. And that's what's going on in the capital of the Byzantine Empire. So the, the guy who's actually on the throne is Alexius III, and he is being opposed by Alexius IV. Now, despite the numbers, they are not father and son, okay? Um, and so Alexius, number four, he sees this big crusader army coming into town, and I mean, they're pretty much at this point have a reputation of being a bunch of thugs who kill for money, and so he say, and he's you know, he, he has lost this struggle, so he needs some muscle. So the, the contender for the throne, number four, uh, he says that he will pay huge sums, huge sums if they will help him overthrow Alexius III, enough money to pay off all their debts, supply the whole crusade, and more. Okay, now it's even, uh, historians even think that Enrico Dandolo knew very well that Alexius didn't have any money. And there was no money in the uh, Byzantine treasury to pay these guys anything, but he was lying to them, but he didn't care. Okay, so, I mean, but at least by this point, I mean, they realized these people would attack their own grandmothers for money, and so they do it. They defeat the Byzantine army, they put... uh, Alexius number four up on the throne, and of course he tells them he's got no money, he's not going to pay them anything. So being the good crusaders they are, they rise up and they sack the city of Constantinople. Now just to remind you, the crusades got started in the first place to help Constantinople against the Muslims, were supposed to be a real threat, but never once managed to hurt the city of Constantinople, and now we've got crusaders sacking the place. Okay, by this point, the crusade loses all interest in going to Egypt or Jerusalem or anywhere else, and they go back home. Now, I just tell this story, I mean, it doesn't really uh, get us anywhere uh, with the story of uh, Salah hadin in the in the Mamluks. But just to illustrate a point that we've said, uh, you know, over and over again, that the the uh, stereotypical image of the Crusades as these great clashes of religious zeal between Islam and Christianity, I mean, it's really exposed for what they really are when we when we look at the Fourth Crusade. Well, you might think that the, I mean, the disgrace of the Fourth Crusade would turn the Pope off of Crusades forever. But no, it doesn't. This same Pope Innocent uh, begins another one, and he's going to launch another crusade again at Ayyubid, Egypt. Okay, uh, but he realizes they're still really having trouble uh, coming up with troops to do this, and so this i mean—very, very strict Christian, the Pope, he's going to ally with the Seljuk Turks, who, of course, are, are Sunni Muslims. Now, remember, we left the Seljuks a while back, but they were the big threat that led to the first crusade. Okay, so remember, it was the Seljuk threat against Constantinople. So what do you do? You sack Constantinople, you ally with the Seljuks, and you attack Egypt. Okay, the point is these crusades in reality are, are so far from what any of the rhetoric of them says they're supposed to do. I mean, these are, the, I mean, they're straight up wars of conquest. And you can see why in the Muslim world they're not viewed as these wars of, of religion. They're viewed as part of the, you know, the colonial imperialistic conquest. So anyway, uh, the Seljuks, though, uh, who had once controlled Syria, they've lost territory, they've lost territory to the Ayyubids. And so, okay, a crusader army is going to come and attack the Ayyubids. Uh, we want to get in on this. We're going to attack the northern part. We're going to attack Syria. You guys attack Egypt. And, I mean, doesn't seem like anybody really cares uh, what religion anybody is. Okay, so just to give you that mess and, and just more... Uh, just to to shed uh, more and more light on the Crusades uh, for what they really were. In the year 1218, the Crusader armies land in Egypt, and they assault the port city of Damietta. It's a a port up on the, the Nile Delta near Alexandria. Now, this thing is a real mess, because you have forces from all kinds of nations, there's no overall command or coordination, just everybody out there trying to seek their own glory, but nonetheless, they still manage to capture the the city of Demieta, and they start uh, marching towards Cairo, which of course, Cairo is inland, you have to go south down the Nile to get there. But the march to Cairo is a complete disaster. I mean, they, they take Demietta by surprise, but marching across the desert to get to Cairo, uh, they're constantly attacked by Mamluks. They basically have to retreat, and in order to, to get out of uh, Egypt alive, they have to give Demietta back to the Ayyubids. Okay. Well, that doesn't put a stop to it either. Ten years later, we get what is, what is probably one of the most successful crusades, the Sixth Crusade. Uh, and this is successful because there's not really any fighting in it. So what, what happens here is in 1228, there's a rebellion going on in Syria. There very often is a rebellion going on, Aleppo and the cities around it rebelling. And so the Ayyubid Sultan at that time, whose name was Al-Kamil, he's basically tied up putting down the rebellion, okay? Uh, And in this case, there is some unity in this uh, crusade because this one is not called by the Pope. It's actually initiated by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. Okay, but in any case, by the time his army lands in Palestine, they're pretty weak. They've had a lot of attrition, and they really aren't up for fighting anyone, but he reasons that al Kamal is so busy in Syria, uh, he doesn't have the forces, he doesn't have the time to deal with a, a threat in his rear, uh, he can't deal with a crusade in Palestine, so he'll cut a deal just so he doesn't have to fight them. And he's correct, that's what happens. So the crusaders end up getting a number of smaller cities, and they work out sort of a co-ownership deal of Jerusalem, where you know both sides kind of get access to the city. Um, this is a big victory for Frederick. I mean, this is this is the best any crusader has done. Uh, I mean, he's got Christians again with some kind of ownership of Jerusalem, so you would think that the pope would be very happy. So what does the pope do? He formally deposes Frederick II because it wasn't his crusade. Okay, so he gets punished for doing that. Okay, so the crusades are really degenerating into pure farce at this point. Um, if they weren't that already. But on the Muslim side though, this is really starting to wear out the Ayyubid dynasty. And this is gonna be the beginning of the end for them. Now we get to really the most interesting part of the story. Uh, Now, the real doom for the Ayyubids comes after the death of El Kamil. Uh, He's doing a fairly good job holding things together. Uh, Of course, he's fighting more and more, so the Mamluks are becoming more and more powerful in his army. But uh, El Kamil dies, okay, Uh, as you know happens to everybody, but we know what happens when a a ruler dies. You've had enough episodes in this story to know that there's going to be a power struggle, and in this one, it's a, you know, a pretty bitter power struggle that goes on for a while. The eventual winner, and the person who will eventually become the sultan, is named al-Salah, and he, he wins but he wins at great cost. So to get a a loyal force, so al-Salah can have a a loyal force behind him, he essentially purges the Kurds from his army and builds a force of entirely Turkish Mamluks. Remember before they had maintained a balance, okay? They they didn't want either one of these factions to get too strong, but I mean al-Salah... The, he doesn't trust the Kurds, and so he now has a force that is entirely Turkish Mamluks, and it's a small, it's a small army. And the core of his army is his personal guard, uh, which is known as the Bahriya Regiment, and this name comes from the name of their barracks in Cairo, which is on the island of Rhoda in the Nile River in Cairo. Okay, uh, the word Bahr means sea and I mean this is in a river but it's an island on a river and let's face it these guys are coming from the steppes where they're nowhere near the ocean so I mean being in the middle of the Nile river it's like a sea but anyway the the Bahriya barracks in Cairo um, is one of the most prestigious one of the most powerful and again this is like a family you know I mean you have some regiments like in particularly in the British army that you know have this long history well, this is the same the same idea here. Okay, now they will be the really the key power in the fall of the Ayyubids and the beginning of the Mamluks. And in fact, the first Mamluk dynasty is known as the Bahri dynasty uh, because it's based on this barracks. And why that's so important. Again, these these are like families. Okay. Alright, so as I said, al-Salah manages to consolidate power. But by the time he does, the, the Bahris are really the military elite of the nation. And there's very little between them and the leadership of the country, I mean, other than al-Salah himself. Meanwhile, the threats to the nation are going to grow. And that's going to really be the push that, that pushes these Bahri Mamluks into control. Okay, so how does that happen? Well, for a, a very convoluted series of, of reasons, um, the peace between the Muslims and the Crusaders that, that had been worked out uh, after the last crusade is going to fall apart. And really what's happening is the, the Mongols are pushing very hard from the east. Um, I mean, they're about to enter into Persia and Iraq. by doing When they do that, they are pushing other tribes to the west. They are going into Syria and into Palestine. This throws off the balance, and uh, so there's another crusade. So in 1248, the Seventh Crusade, which is led by King Louis IX, or Saint Louis, right, Saint Louis of France, They land again in Egypt, and once again, they seize the city of Damietta, which is the sort of the gateway. Okay, now, again, why do disruptions in Syria lead to an invasion of Egypt? Well, it's because they they realize that Egypt, the Ayyubids, is the main Muslim power, and that's who you have to go after. Okay, but I mean, this is not just a, uh, a nice little crusade. King Louis sends a very threatening letter to the Ayyubid sultan, telling him he's going to slaughter the people and drive them before him. And he says that even if the sultan himself were to convert to Christianity and come begging on his knees, he's still going to cut off his head. Um... Bear that in mind, that letter's kind of going to come back to haunt him, and you shouldn't write stuff like that if you're going into war. But anyway, uh, this French army, it's largely this French army, uh, is takes Damietta and they're heading south towards Cairo, okay, when Asala, the Ayyubid sultan, dies of natural causes, okay? So uh, Louis is never going to get a chance to cut off his head anyway. Now this really could have left the Ayyubid forces in disarray at this time. But the sultan's wife, Shajarat Ador, uh, which means her name means tree of pearls, she takes charge of the situation. And Shajarat Ador is one of the most famous characters in Egyptian folklore, particularly Egyptian Muslim folklore. Uh, She's been the subject of books. She's been the subject of plays and movies. Uh, She's a hero to a lot of people, and she's seen as basically the real founder of the Mamluk dynasty. Now, she has the backing of the Bahriya Mamluks, who we said are really the key power. They are the most powerful unit in this entire army, okay, and... Ordinarily, this might not be the cause of, of basically a revolution or a coup. I mean, we have the sultan has died, so we just need a new sultan, and the Mamluks can go and fight the war. But the danger here is that Asala's son, whose name is Turan Shah, um, he is the one who is expected to succeed uh, Asala. Now, the, the fact is though. It's, it's not like they were very close and he just takes dad's position. Uh, Asala, he has his own contingent of Mamluks, okay? So he's got his own entourage, his own power base, you know, and they're, they're a regiment of, you know, really powerful Mamluk fighters. And naturally, they're going to want to curtail the power of the Bahriya, who up to this time have been, like, I mean, the core, you know, basically the Sultan's guard. And they don't like that. Okay, so they support Shajarat durr to keep their own power, okay, so they basically pledge their allegiance to her. And so she becomes, just for a short time, basically for three months, she becomes the Sultan of Egypt. And she even has coins minted with her name as Sultan, although only one of those coins still exists today, but remember that was one of the, the big things you did to let everyone know who was in charge. Okay, so you, you put your own face on money. I mean, nowadays we only put the face of, of dead people on money, but boom, uh, they did that. All right, it's the same thing that a lot of dictators do today. I mean, Saddam Hussein had his face on all the, all the money in his, uh, in his country. Okay, so uh, here we have a woman, Sajar at Uh, widow of the old sultan, but they don't want the new sultan to take charge, so they follow her. Now, she is a very effective strategist, both military and political strategist. Uh, She is always remembered and portrayed as being extremely sharp, extremely shrewd, and she has some of the best Mamluk generals serving in her army. Uh, and, and many of them, uh, when you list the names of the, just they, they were just generals of this Bahriya force in her uh, military. These are some of the most famous names in uh, Mamluk history. For example, uh, Baybars al-Bundakari, who's probably the most famous and probably most accomplished of all the Mamluk sultans, uh, he is a general in her army, and he's only like third in, in command at the time, okay, so she's got a really powerful force, and therefore they can justify this, this coup, I mean, this is essentially what it is, because the nation is in danger from a foreign invasion, I mean, they've got a French army led by a king who's, I mean, basically said he's going to kill everybody marching towards Cairo, uh, and in their mind, you know, we're the Bahriya, we're the best fighters going, uh, we got the best generals, we're not going to let anybody change the plan, uh, you know, we're going to take over, okay? Now, the fact is, uh, they really live up to this. Uh, the, the Bahriya Mamluks, uh, and particularly under uh, Baybar's al-Bondakari, uh, I mean, they have some of the best military accomplishments, in Muslim military history. We're going to talk about some of those. Uh, But they they defeat this French army. Not only that, they capture King Louis IX. Remember, the guy who said he was going to behead the sultan no matter what he did. Okay, he is now uh, a prisoner. Okay, now they don't behead him. What they do is they ransom all of these uh, crusaders off, and they get a lot of money for King Louis. Okay? And in fact, the failure of this crusade, the Seventh Crusade from, you know, in European terms, it's seen as this horrible tragedy and that you know, God is mad with us, and there's this whole wave of mournful writing and blame and repentance across Europe. Now, we're not interested in Europe. What it definitely does is solidifies the power of these Mamluks in, Um, in in Egypt, but they're not done yet. I mean, they're gonna do some pretty amazing things. Okay, so for all her success, uh, Shajarat Ador uh, is not going to last long, and the the simple fact is the prospect of having a woman for a sultan is a bit hard for some to accept. Remember, the uh, Ayyubid dynasty is not just Egypt. They control a lot of other things. They have relations with a lot of other people. So, for one, the Abbasid caliph uh, he sends a message to Cairo and says that if you can't find a man to rule, we'll, we will send you one. A very sarcastic uh, comment. I mean, particularly coming from a guy who's pretty much a, a figurehead and doesn't rule much of anything, being sent to uh, Shah Jahan Tadour, who's you know got m- more power than he does. But it is it is a big uh, blow because. They need that official approval. Remember, the Ayyubid sultans have always maintained this facade that they work for the Khalif. Uh, you know, the Khalif blesses them and that he approves of them. And and here now you have the Khalif saying flat out, "No way, you're you're not the Sultan." Okay. The same thing happens with the Ayyubid princes in Syria. They flat out say, "No way, you're not our Sultan. Uh, we, you know, we're not going to have a woman for Sultan." Okay. So, I mean, this is, unfortunately, a blow, and this is why uh, Shajar Tadur only rules for three months. So, I mean, she has no real choice, uh, so she agrees to marry Abak, who is the, the head uh, Mamluk general at this time, and for him to officially become sultan, although she continues to be very powerful, she's continuing to call the shots uh, for a while, okay? well. So far, they've, done, they've dealt with the external threats, and so the Mamluks are, you know, pretty strong in power, but unfortunately, in a situation that's going to become very familiar in Mamluk history, I mean, a cycle that is going to repeat over and over again, uh, Abak, who is now the official sultan, begins to feel threatened by the success of the other Mamluks. Uh, and that's the thing about this system is, you know, for all its good points, you, you have a problem that, I mean, there, there is no actual family relations. You're not passing on rule uh, to your son. I mean, this is basically a military junta, and this is what it will be for three centuries. And, uh, I mean, it's the strongest general who rules. And so. Uh, Basically, you feel threatened when someone else comes up. So what happens, though, is you you need strong generals to actually run the army and win battles. So what happens is they'll find an effective general. They send him out to crush a rebellion or to defeat an invasion. That restores stability, but then you start to wonder, okay, now this general I just sent out, uh, he's becoming powerful. People are starting to respect him, and you start to wonder... Uh, with, you know, very good reason, you start to wonder if this person is going to try and overthrow you, uh, and so you have them killed off. And, you know, honestly, if you don't, then they probably do overthrow you. So, I mean, this is going to be a real, real cycle for the Mamluks from here on out. I mean, there is basically only one source of legitimacy only one way of getting into the the seat of power in the Mamluk empire, and and that is by force, by assassination, by coup, that's how you get in charge. Okay, so what happens? Well, Abak kills his main rival, who's someone named Akhtay, and he drives the rest of his Mamluk rivals, the Bahriya, Uh, including Baybars, the great Baybars al-Bundakari, out of Egypt, and they flee into Syria. And you're saying, wait a minute, I thought he came from them. Well, he did, but now he's starting to be afraid of them. He's the sultan, and he's afraid of this Bahriya regiment, so he pretty much drives them out of Egypt. Uh, And since we said Baybars is going to become a great sultan, I mean, you can guess that they will come back, they will take over, uh, and that's what they do. Okay, but he's not done then. Remember, he's still kind of sharing power with a uh, Shijaratador. Uh, but he's trying to get more power for himself. And so when we're talking about these two, I mean, uh, you know, don't think of it as the way it would look in the movies. You know, we have two two lovers here being jealous and something like that. I mean, we're talking about two power players, both very shrewd political survivors both with their own entourages of, you know, people who have thrown in their lots with them, you know, scheming behind, you know, behind everybody's back. So, I mean, this is some power politics between these two spouses. And so at one point, uh, Abak is planning to take another wife. And, I mean, it's not just that he's fallen in love. This is it's a political marriage that is going to consolidate his power. Okay, now, Sujaratador's faction However, they don't like this, and it turns out um, that they act on it first, and so what do you do? They have Abak killed in his bath, and so basically things are back to uh, Shajarat Ador being in charge again, but this is not the end. There's the very famous uh, demise of Shijarat Ador, and what happens is Abak's son and his first wife, he had a wife- uh, before Shajarat Ador and their contingent of Mamluks, remember everybody's got their contingent, they have Shajarat Ador beaten to death with wooden bath sandals and thrown from a tower, and this is, this is a very famous scene, how she dies is, is very well remembered, okay? And so this essentially is the end of the Ayyubid Sultanate in Egypt, Okay, not a very glorious end. But remember, she is technically the wife, the widow of the last Ayyubid sultan. Uh, She's been thrown off a tower into a ditch, and she's actually left there for a couple of days. And all the power now that's remaining are in the hands of these uh, Mamluk sultans. Uh, We have Abak running things. Uh, He was running things, uh, but now his son is there. But we have the more powerful Mamluks, like Baybars, who are in Syria. They see the power vacuum, and we could continue to follow who overthrows whom for a really long time. Okay. So, anyway, if you're going to try and keep track of the Mamluk sultans, uh, you're going to have a real challenge. I mean, with this type of military junta running things... Um, the only way to take power is by force, and the, the reigns of sultans become very, very brief. Okay? They have 53 sultans in three centuries. The average rule is five years, and, and now in some cases, the same guy will seize power three separate times and be kicked out three times. Um, but this is the, the end of the Ayyubid dynasty. For, for better or worse, I mean, we are now in an age of military rulers um, taking power and overthrowing one another of extreme political instability. But despite that, I mean, you might think that this would be a period of chaos But the Mamluk period actually can be considered another golden age, put that in quotes, quote, golden age, in in terms of what goes on. Cairo becomes the largest city in the world. It becomes the center for the arts and sciences and of power projection. And these Mamluks, as much as they love to fight each other for control, uh, I mean, they really become the, the undisputed masters of the battlefield, out there. I mean, no one is able to take Egypt from them. And I mean, this Cairo becomes really the center of the, the Muslim world while Baghdad has been sacked and destroyed by the Mongols to never really fully recover. And so uh, despite all of this, it's actually a uh, considered a golden age. And that's a story for another time. Okay, we're going to talk more about the Mamluk period, and its many paradoxes and contradictions, which, uh, for better or worse, is another golden age of Islam. So, thank you very much for your kind attention, for your kind comments. Uh, We certainly appreciate them, and we look forward to seeing you again next time. Shukran jazilin wa ma salama.